At some point in my second year of seminary, I stumbled upon a book called The Bible and the Pursuit of Happiness. Intrigued, I grabbed it off the shelf, wondering if it was some kind of chicken soup for the soul-esque collection, and if so, how it ended up in the seminary library. Opening it up to the introduction, However, I was struck by the epigraph on the first page, which was this dialogue. And don't some people fall in love with their heart's desire, marry, and live reasonably happy lives? Some, for a while. Maybe. I can't say. Don't you believe in love? Yes. The word has become polluted. Beware of people who go around talking about loving and caring. Harsh. And clearly a different genre from chicken soup. That quote comes from a 1983 book called Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book, written by Walker Percy. The editor of Pursuit of Happiness, Brent Strawn, wrote that he chose that quote because love, like happiness, the subject of his book, has a long history of being ill-defined. Somehow, he notes, we've reached a point where we can use the same word to describe our spouse as we can to describe our favorite breakfast cereal. And that threatens to strip the word of any meaning at all. High-minded ideals with nothing to ground them are easily swayed and easily corrupted. So to avoid such a fate, I feel like we need to revive the conversation on the nature and the varieties of love. And we'll do so today with C.S. Lewis as our guide. Now, no group has shaped our conceptions of love, at least in the West, more than the Greeks. And for that reason, Lewis tends to make use of the Greek names for the loves. Storge, philia, eros, and agape. I will not be such a stickler. Affection, friendship, romance, and charity are how these are typically rendered in English, though there has been a push in recent years to leave that last one, agape, untranslated. And I suspect this has a lot to do with the ways in which the word charity has itself evolved over the years. Now, I could walk you through the history of ancient Greek debate over which love was the preeminent virtue, the summum bonum, the greatest good. But that is not a sermon, that is a lecture, and you're already getting a book report, so I will not do that. <laughs> Besides, it's pretty clear that the Apostle Paul pretty much won that debate, because no one has managed to budge 
public sentiment away from charity or agape or close to two millennia. When we light that chalice and say love is the doctrine of this church, we are not promising anybody romance. But I know you know that. We are committing to the kind of love laid out in 1 Corinthians, a love that is patient and kind and free from envy or arrogance and willing to forgive. And this is no easy feat, my friends. Now, fortunately for us, the so-called natural loves, affection, friendship, and romance, are all teachers. They all have lessons for us about that higher love. And loving is, in fact, something we are constantly learning to do better. I've actually been fascinated for a long while now about the Greek idea of virtue, which says that virtues and their corresponding vices are actually the same things, just in or out of balance. For example, cowardice, courage, and foolhardiness are all conditions of the same energy. And the loves work in a similar way. They can go out of whack, but there's still love, even when we're not living them to their fullest. And that's kind of a radical idea for one that's several millennia old. This is important because, on some level, I think we're all aware of the fact that people can love badly, but I'm worried that part of our modern problem is a fear of saying so. Once it goes wrong, I think our inclination is to say it's no longer love. But I feel like that's counterproductive to growing in love. In several of the books I've read, Four Loves included, I've encountered a peculiar idea, repeated almost verbatim across all of them. God is love, and love is God are not the same things. And what they seem to mean by this is that we have, in the last 200 years or so, in the aftermath of the Enlightenment and the Romanticism of the early 1800s, we've started to attribute to love the qualities once ascribed to God. Love is beyond reproach or criticism. Love is all-encompassing. Love is the source of all good things. Love can do anything. Love is ethereal and often inscrutable. The way we encounter and experience love is entirely subjective. Now, some of these are true. And some of these are true for just some of the loves. But because of our singular word, 
they've sort of bled into places where they're not true. And so we're not necessarily better for our understanding of love this way. And if love is to be our doctrine, our guiding principle, or even our God, whatever it is to each of us, we must be able to articulate it, lest it become meaningless, or even worse, co-opted. If love is what grounds us, like I said at the beginning of today's service, then we must have our anchor points. So let's dive in. We begin with affection. The love born out of comfort and familiarity. Both Lewis and the Greek philosophers believed that this love is first learned in the bond between a child and its caregiver. To the child, at first, it is what he calls a need love. I need to be fed, to be birthed, I need to be changed, I need to be held. And I grow attached to whoever provides this for me. Parents, caregivers, grandparents, too, feel affection for their wards. But it's also, if we are lucky, if we are fortunate, if we are so blessed, mixed with charity, here manifested as deep devotion and a willingness to sacrifice. And it says, you are here, and that is all I need to love you. And since affection is the love of the familiar, it is also the love we have for things and for places. It is the most diffuse and least demanding of the loves. It ignores many of the barriers that would otherwise keep us separate because as Brene Brown said so eloquently, it is hard to hate up close. But it does make demands sometimes. Since it is born out of familiarity, affection struggles with change, even change for the better. Lewis says that at its very best, Affection liberates us from our prejudices and our idiosyncrasies. It allows us to appreciate people for who they are in themselves, not because they suit some preference that we hold, as is the case in friendship and romance. Healthy affection says, you don't need to change anything about yourself. This is its divine aspect. At its worst, however, affection is concerned not with the person themselves, but with the circumstances to which one has grown accustomed. Unhealthy affection says, don't you dare change. You might say that though it remains a love in the philosophical sense, it has somehow managed to become unloving. And here we see the paucity of our language. Friendship comes next. 
To many of the Greek philosophers, friendship, not charity, was chief amongst the loves because in their mind, it was the one that raised us and set us apart from animals. But wait, you might say, I've seen lots of videos online of cute animals being friends with each other. <laughs> to Lewis and the Greek philosophers both, uh, they would not call this friendship. Indeed, most of what we call friendships today would not meet their criteria. Those whom you keep company, or with whom you keep company, are not necessarily your friends in their minds. Friendship goes beyond proximity. They believed it was about some thing, some shared passion or belief. And there is no richer soil for personal or societal change than a group of friends. Each addition to the group brings something new out of each other member, adds some energy, something that can only be born in the school of virtue that is friendship. This is both, this is both its power and its danger, though. Friendship naturally creates an in-group, and when you create an in-group, you create an out-group, where the opinions and attitudes of those within outweigh those without. Lewis calls this a partial deafness to the wider world. And it may be completely innocuous. Lewis uses the example of stamp collecting, even in 1960, something of a niche hobby. A lone child may be convinced to give up their unpopular hobby by schoolyard bullies. Find another philatelist, though, however, and you, they together become unstoppable and obnoxious. And they are perfectly content to sit in their corner and compare their stamps, and they are now inured to the teasing of their bully and detractors. But in that seedbed of shared passion and shared values, the best, and sometimes the worst, too, of humanity is born. Friendship insulates itself from attack, whether or not it's merited. Every cause, every movement, every protest and counter-protest succeeds, Lewis claims, because it was built on the back of friendship. Friendship gathers, friendship protects, and friendship empowers. This is its divine trait, but it can do that for the wrong things, too. As distasteful as it may be to our modern sensibilities, friendship can be born out of shared hatred or shared exclusion as much as it can be shared, born out of a sense of shared justice, or mercy, or kindness. Bigots can be remarkably good to other bigots. And on that note, I want you to remember that phrase from earlier about love not being God. Lewis goes a step further. When love becomes a God, he writes, it risks becoming a demon. And nowhere is this more apparent than when it comes to romance. 
That we have in our lexicon the phrase crime of passion is evidence enough of that. Humans are remarkably good at coming up with reasons for their bad behavior, but I did it for love is always a justification, never an excuse. It becomes a law unto itself when it is unhealthy. Now, Lewis doesn't have too much to write on the subject of romance that's surprising. He was a bachelor until quite late in life, so perhaps that's understandable that Eros was his shortest chapter. I will just say that he saw the divine trait of romance being fidelity, as evidenced in the marriage vows we're likely all familiar with. For better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And last, we have charity. All the best parts of the other three, and infinitely more beside. Charity, he writes, is that which allows us to love when the other three loves are not stirred up in us, when we are faced with those unfamiliar or even opposed to us, those in which we find nothing attractive or appealing. Charity dispels a common misconception. The opposite of love is not hate, problematic though it may be. It is selfishness. Lewis approaches the close of his book with a fierce repudiation of St. Augustine, who said that we should love nothing but God, lest we bring suffering upon ourselves. To love at all is to be vulnerable, Lewis writes. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and unredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. Now, Lewis actually had a remarkably progressive theology of the afterlife, so this is not so much straight talk as metaphor. The important part, I think, is acknowledging the risk that comes with loving well. And a big part of that risk is opening ourselves up to being told when we aren't loving well, of being confronted with our misconceptions, of learning our blind spots and all the ways of loving we had never considered before. This Valentine's Day, and every day besides, when you tell someone I love you, tell them what that means. Tell them why, and tell them how. Because if love is in some way infinite, it does have some godlike quality to it.
then the conversation is never truly over. Amen.